Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we will focus exclusively on events in Khurasan during the reign of Hisham bin Abdul Malik. While the province had always been somewhat restive, Umayyad control over it deteriorated a little too far under Yazid II's carelessly biased administration, and the situation there flared dangerously just as the new caliph came to power. Hisham cycled through a half a dozen governors, and a close look at their tenures will help us understand the roots and dynamics of Khurasan's many problems in episode 35, Turkish Troubles. This may not be the best opener, but I feel a lot of pressure writing this episode. Things are about to get complicated, nuanced and pivotal, with various trifling details on unrelated levels all of a sudden reshaping the world around them as if they had been these immutable and decisive factors all along. Momentous changes are brewing, and it'll take more than this episode to properly explore their symptoms and causes. We'll take a piecemeal approach to this daunting task. Today we'll cover the different governors Hisham put in charge of Khurasan and their attempts to reassert control over the region and beat back the Turkish threat. I want you to pay attention though, like to everything. I know that's both demanding and unhelpful, but the whole point of opening with this vague warning is to underline the importance of the details of today's events, their contexts and circumstances. They will prove more consequential in the long run than even the outcomes of the events themselves. So bear with me if I spend a little extra time describing the tribal or ideological significance of certain figures, parties, and battles. Alright, let's start with a short refresher before delving back into the history. We already touched on Hisham's decisions in the East with an eye on the tribal feud, and I know we had a whole episode between then and now but I'm glad we got the discussion of the Caliphate's other provinces out of the way before Khurasan. Since Khurasan will be critical to the Ummah's future, something I've hinted at repeatedly now, it's good that we have other experiences to compare and contrast to, and a timeline to measure up against. So there were plenty of problems in the East, but the worst two were the conflicting attitudes towards the status of the Mawadi and the tribal feud. The first of these had always been bubbling away in the background, but it only became a real issue after Yazid reversed Omar's inclusive reforms, leading to great discontent. The Mawadi grew disenchanted after their short-lived social promotion, and there were many Arabs who saw the inherent injustice of the Caliphate's policies. These sympathizers were mostly of the Khurasaniyya, Arabs who had been born and raised in the East, many of them descendants of those Iraqis resettled in Meru by the first governor of the East, Ziad ibn Abi Sufyan. They were by no means a majority among the Khurasaniyya, but we'll see how this issue further divided an already fragmented Ummah as we meet some of them today. The problem with a tribal feud should need no introduction, but let me remind you how it had gotten so bad in the East. Al-Hajjaj was too tyrannical to take sides, but his Azdi nemesis, the Muhallabs, took shelter with the Qahtanis, and their reprisals against Al-Hajjaj's men when they rose to power imported the tribal dynamic into the struggle. Omar's pious reign paused the feud, but it resumed with a vengeance at the ascension of the solidly pro-Hajjaj Yazid II, who
who relied almost exclusively on Adnanis. I will keep using the labels Adnani and Qahtani so as not to confuse anyone, but I thought you might like to know that our sources haven't used them in a while now. Even during the second fitna, the preferred terms were Qaisi and Yamani, and in the east, the latest nomenclature pit the sons of Qais and Mudar against the Azd-Rabi'ah alliance. Anyway, things were really, really bad, and we heard about rumors that thousands of Ezd warriors refused to obey the orders of their Adnani commander and had to be threatened with force by Adnani armies. I'm sure all this division played a part in the disastrous Arab defeat at the hands of the Turkish and their local allies in the Day of Thirst. If I'm right, then that's already an early example of how the confluence of the tribal and ethnic tensions effectively upended Arab power in the East. This was the dangerous mess Athad al-Qasri was appointed to clean up. His brother, Khaled al-Qasri, was Hisham's governor of Iraq, and the two were from the small Bahiri tribe, who most of our sources say remained unaffiliated in the Ummah's tribal feud. Asad did eventually earn a reputation as a Qahtani partisan, and he probably relied on them after being rejected by the Adnanis for having replaced their leaders empowered under Yazid. He took it a little too far, though. It's not clear when, but at one point, his right-hand man was the chief of Ezd, basically the leader of the Qahtani side. I think he started out as neutral, and then these later developments colored the way he was seen by some narrators. Soon after arriving in his province, Asad embarked on several energetic campaigns against local rebellions. Two of these, Khutal and Al-Ghur, were in the east, near Tajikistan today, and another was in Zabulistan. The Turkish rebellion in the Fergana Valley seems to have encouraged some of these natives of Tukharistan to try their luck, but Khalid was pretty successful at tamping out their uprisings before they developed into something dangerous. It's not like these guys could deal with the caliphate alone anyway. If they really wanted to stand a chance, they needed to ask the Turkish for help. I'm sure it didn't escape Assad that these rebellions occurred in the outlying lands, especially the ones that had been the most brutally conquered. I say this because he immediately took up a much friendlier stance towards the Mawadi, exempting them from taxation and treating them as equals within the Ummah, something he kept up throughout his tenure. He either founded or rebuilt the city of Balkh, which some sources claim had been destroyed by the vengeful Qutaybah once upon a time after its people had offended him. The timing is all over the place in our sources. These events all happened sometime between 725 and 728, the year Ethad was removed from power. There are all sorts of allegations about how he had crossed a line in the tribal feud, but the one that sticks the most is a narration in which he had four Adnani leaders publicly flogged in Maru, the provincial capital, for no apparent reason besides displaying Qahtani dominance. Assad had done a pretty good job quelling local rebellions and disincentivizing the local nobility from throwing their lot in with the Turkish. His replacement, Ashras, started along the same path, and one account says he asked for pious men to help administer his cities, and he got some people who subscribed to Omar's vision of the Ummah. Within a year, though, he felt that the system was being abused and sought to administer religious tests like asking people who wanted to be exempted from taxation to recite the Qur'an and undergo circumcision. It seems like he gravely underestimated how much more power the nobility had when their people were pissed, and they were pissed. We also have narrations about how some of his administrators refused to tax the Mawadi and disobeyed their governor. That same year, in 729, two different battles between the Ummah and the local Sogdians allied with the Turkish were recorded, after the nobility had written to the Khagan Suluk asking for help. Both engagements were defensive ones for the Ummah, 
and its armies attempted to repel assaults on their forts, each one close to a regional center of Arab power. We know quite a bit about the raid on Baikand by Bukhara, and a whole lot about the glorious and costly defense of the fort of Kamarja by Samarkand. The Arabs lasted for over 50 days in the latter, holding on through a moat of fire for so long that it drove a wedge between Suluk and the local nobility, who had assured him that the Arabs wouldn't last longer than five days. Our sources tell some colorful stories of the Ummah's army being sent emissaries, like the grandson of the final Shahanshah, Yazdegard III, and the Turkish messenger, who promised to double their pay if they agreed to join the Khagan. Ultimately, the Arabs managed to negotiate their safe withdrawal from the fort, and our sources praise them for their perseverance in the face of unfavorable odds. Neither of these battles caused significant loss of life among the Arabs, but they show a clear decline in Umayyad control of the province. Hisham must have blamed Ashras for these uprisings against the Caliphate because he replaced his governor of Khurasan the very next year in 730 with Junaid, the commander who had recently done well in the province of Sindh. Maybe it wasn't the best idea to change horses in the middle of the race like that, though. The Turkish were more menacing than ever, and recent Arab successes against them had come in the form of safe withdrawals and negotiated evacuations. Upon his arrival in Khurasan, Junaid sent a few armies out to assert control of the area, and before long news came of a massive Turkish assault led by the Khagan Suluk on the vital city of Samarkand. It was the closest center of Arab power to the Fergana Valley, and an absolutely crucial position for the Ummah to hold. Its commander had written to the governor asking for relief, and so Junaid decided to take all the forces he had, some 40,000 men, and march to its defense. Poetically, there were two paths he could take, the long way through some exposed plains, or the short one through a dangerously narrow passage. He picked the second because he wanted to get by undetected and catch the Turkish off guard, but it was not to be. After the entire Arab army was cramped in the gorge, their enemy appeared all around them. They were trapped. The magnitude of the loss the Ummah suffered over the next five days is really what makes the last few encounters with the Turkish seem like victories. As their forces were picked off from all sides, Junaid ordered his governor of Samarkand to come to his aid, which is a little ironic, yes, but more importantly, it is tellingly desperate. The full Arab garrison of Samarkand, 12,000 men, emerged to relieve the governor's army, but they were quickly defeated by the Turkish horsemen, and only one or 2,000 survived. Some sources allege that the king of Samarkand made common cause with the Turkish as soon as the Arabs had stepped outside his gates. I'm not sure if that's true, but it's another nod to the power the local nobility held in the caliphate's frontier. This terrible loss coincided with the Battle of Ardabil, in which the Khazars destroyed the city and took its population captive, making 731 one of the Ummah's darkest years. Junaid and a few thousand of his men eventually made it through to Samarkand, and he camped there for the next few months. Having failed to take the city, the Turkish rode to lay siege to Bukhara, at the very west of the Sogdian realm. Junaid led an army in pursuit and managed to thwart their attempts at taking it, except he had so few men at this point that he had to leave Samarkand practically empty to protect Bukhara. Within the next year, Samarkand had been abandoned, and the Arabs no longer held any positions close enough to attack the Turkish in the Fergana Valley where they had come from. The next few engagements between the two sides happened by Bukhara, and the Arabs managed to successfully hold on to their position in the city. There was a new problem, though. 
The mortal loss at the Battle of the Gorge dwarfed that from the Day of Thirst seven years earlier. Between the two incidents, the Khurasaniya Arabs had been decimated, and the few thousand still alive were resentful, and their criticism of the Caliphate grew bolder. One of them, a man named Harith ibn Suraj, got especially vocal with his condemnation, and was flogged in public for it. Harith first came up as one of the heroes at the Battle of Baikand two years earlier, but he'll be a surprisingly significant figure going forward. Although he was still a nobody at this point, his punishment for decrying the Caliphate's hypocrisy didn't help its already tarnished reputation. Junaid passed away of old age in 734. Some sources allege that Hisham was already upset with him and wanted to replace him, but was spared having to do so by his natural death. The charge against Junaid wasn't his dismal performance in the East, but his recent marriage to a daughter of Yazid ibn al-Muhallabs. I honestly don't know what to think. Some narrations relay the story to praise Hisham for his vigilance at keeping his administration out of the tribal feud, while others use it to portray the caliphate as the eternal enemy of the Muhallabs, champions of the East. The more sources you read, the denser the jumble of themes grows, but it's enough to note that the stories are all about explaining different tensions between the Arabs of the Ummah. The upstart, Harith, was stationed in a frontier outpost when news of Junaid's passing arrived. Taking advantage of the sudden power vacuum, he convinced its garrison to join him in mutiny. He justified his rebellion on religious grounds, censuring the Umayyads as having misled the Ummah and such, you know, the usual fare. The aggrieved Khurasaniya Arabs quickly got on board, and since his idea of justice was aligned with Omar's vision for the Caliphate, Harith's movement enjoyed overwhelming support from the Muwadi and grew rapidly as a result. Hisham's fourth governor was a Syrian named Asim. Since Khurasan didn't really have an army following its defeat by the Turkish, the governor of Iraq sent 20,000 men, 10 from Basra and 10 from Kufa, to replenish its forces, and he ordered a levy of 15,000 troops from its local Mawadi. Asim was not exactly well received in the provincial capital. Nothing happened, but he arrived when hostility to the Umayyads and the Caliphate was swelling. He was viewed as an outsider by just about everybody. Even the Iraqis who had just arrived resisted taking orders from him because he was Syrian, so despite the reinforcement, his position was far from secure. Aslim didn't have long to get his act together, though. In 734, the same year he was appointed, the same year his predecessor died, Harith already felt confident enough to challenge him for control of Meru. It may have been a little premature, but Harith probably wanted to strike while the iron was hot. Anti-Umayyad sentiment was exceptionally high, and the new governor seemed clueless. Asim had to resort to threatening the residents of Meru that he would abandon the capital for Nishapur if they refused to defend it. Nishapur was on the western edge of Khurasan, and its mostly Adnani tribes were known for their loyalty to the Syrian regime. Whether or not the threat was real, its presence in our sources is yet another reminder of how divided the Arabs had become in the east. As Harith's army got closer, ethnic tensions played into Asim's advantage. The large number of Mawadi among its ranks made the Arabs nervous. They flocked to Asim's defense, and thousands even flipped back to the Ummah. The Mawadi then abandoned in mass, probably worried that any battle which pit Arab against non-Arab would end unkindly for them. The threat diffused so rapidly that the Arabs, no longer spooked by the Mawadi, lost their will to fight for the new governor. When time came for a showdown, neither side could field much of an army, and hostilities were delayed for a year. 
when Hadith returned the next year, Asim could muster only 1,000 men to defend the capital, but they did well to defeat the two or 3,000 men Hadith had brought with him. Asim succeeded in defending Maru, but afterwards he wrote to the caliph asking for more Syrian troops, saying that the caliphate could not depend on any other Arabs to defend its interests in the east. Hisham responded by taking Asim's advice, but also by replacing him with a not-so-new governor. He put together an army of 20,000 Syrians and assigned both it and Khurasan to Asad al-Qasri, the guy we started this growing list of governors with. It's telling that the caliph had to use a man he had previously dismissed for being too biased. It seems like he was running of it seems like he was running out of options in the east and was trying to leverage the unity of the Qahtanis by empowering someone close to them. If that is indeed the case, then it turned out to be a winning strategy. The 20,000 Syrians and the Qahtanis gave the new governor the power he needed to go after Hadith, who could do nothing but run away, all the way east across the Oxus, deep into Tukharistan. Assad's vigorous raids led him to retake Bukhara in the north, which had been lost to Hadith, and also establish a foothold along the outer edges of Tukharistan in the south, though his armies failed to breach the strategic city of Samarkand. The next year, in 737, Assad expanded his raids even further into Tukharistan. In fact, there is so much focus on the region that 737 is the best candidate year for the founding or rebuilding of Balkh, the oasis city at the western edge of Tukharistan. We're even told he made Balkh his new capital, so he could stay as close to the action as possible. There were plenty of small independent powers in the region, but the main adversary were the Khutal, one of the local monarchies which had allied itself and rebelled against the Ummah at various times. While Assad's army plundered its lands, the king of Khutal wrote to the Turkish asking for help. Part of the reason Assad had been so successful was that Suluk and his men were all the way in China after a dispute with the empire, so there had been no Turkish to contend with. But that was about to change. Assad decided they had too much plunder to fight, and so he ordered a withdrawal. He figured his forces were safe as soon as they had crossed the Oxus, despite the fact that Balkh was still days away. Incredibly, our sources say that Hadith emerged from his shelter deep in Tukharistan and made common cause with the Turkish. Hadith realized that Assad wouldn't expect to be pursued, and so he advised Suluk to go after him. The Khagan crossed the river with 50,000 troops, and the Turkish outmaneuvered the Arabs and seized most of the booty they were transporting back, taking thousands of lives and captives in the process. Assad went back to Balkh and prepared to winter at his new capital, hoping to keep the Turkish bottled up in Tukharistan. The Turkish, however, were not done. Hadith again convinced Suluk to take the initiative and attack the Arabs while they were still licking their wounds. Despite the danger of leading a campaign in the unforgiving winter, the two leaders took 30 or 40,000 troops and marched west. Their first real obstacle was Balkh at the mouth of Tukharistan, and they wisely chose to bypass it. The winter would have complicated a siege, the well-fortified city was easy to defend, and since the Arab army was now a fraction of their size, they weren't really worried about being attacked themselves. Assad struggled to put together a force of 7,000 men. Even for this tiny army, we're told of a handful of commanders, each leading a contingent affiliated with this or that branch of the Ummah, whether Iraqis, Syrians, Khurasaniya, Mudar, Azd, etc. At this critical juncture, just two months after losing to the Turkish, Assad got lucky. 
some good reconnaissance allowed him to ambush the Khagan and Harith together with only their personal retinues of 4,000 men. The battle, some distance west of Belch, towards the end of 737, dealt a critical blow to the Ummah's enemies. Both Suluk and Harith survived, but they lost many men and most of the wealth they had taken as they retreated. Their entire invasion force soon turned back and fled after this loss, and Asad returned to Belch in unexpected triumph. Though they faced different fortunes, both Suluk and Asad passed away within months of the battle. Asad died in Belch before the spring, while Suluk was assassinated by a rival of his. Some histories say it was his defeat at the hands of Asad which disgraced him and ultimately led to his death, while others say that his raids against the Chinese led them to encourage his rival to try and take his place. Considering Asad's achievements in the East, there were many who expected the caliph to confirm his trusted deputy as his replacement. There was no question that Asad had surpassed expectations. There's even a narration of Hisham disbelieving early reports of Asad's victory over the Turkish because it was that unthinkable. But Asad's right-hand man was a chieftain of Azd, and so hopelessly Qahtani by implication. The caliph's other decisions around this time were solidly pro-Adnani, and perhaps that's why he kept asking for other recommendations and finally settled for a Nasr ibn Sayyar. Nasr, Hisham's sixth and final governor of the province, was one of the Adnanis whom Asad had flogged publicly before losing his first stint as governor of Khurasan. Nasr had been a soldier since the days of Qutayba, he came up in our sources every now and again, and by the time he was chosen as governor, he was a highly respected 74-year-old commander. The first thing Nasr did as governor was reform the tax system. He imposed a land tax on Muslims and non-Muslims alike, and he decreed that Mawadi were exempt from all poll taxes. This, in effect, protected his revenue while still giving the Mawadi the equality that they sought. The Arabs didn't really mind much either, as the majority of them didn't own any lands, and they still preferred their nomadic lifestyles. Nasr was already beloved in the province before this, but his urgency in addressing their grievances made him even more popular among the Mawadi. He was appointed in 738, and by 740 he was already retaking positions across Transoxiana with ease, even the once secure Samarqand. He simply didn't face as much resistance as his predecessors did. It probably had a lot to do with the fact that the Turkish had descended into a sort of civil war after the murder of Suluk. Despite Nasr's popularity in the east, Hadith was still fomenting rebellion in the name of establishing a more just Ummah. In 741, Nasr faced Hadith and the new Turkish Khagan, Suluk's killer, Korsul. We don't hear much about the Turkish after that, but Al-Hadith's movement persists in our sources. By the time the caliph passed away in another couple of years, Nasr was doing relatively well, mainly using Samarqand as a base to expand back into the Fergana Valley. He even invested the tax revenue from his province in local infrastructure, making it more prosperous than ever. You could say that over the course of his reign, Hisham dealt with the Turkish threat and secured the Ummah's hold on Khurasan, and that's not too far a stretch. But now that we've taken a closer look at the east, it's clear how much more fractious everything was. For example, since Nasr was Adnani, the Qahtanis refused to work for him, and some among them engaged in subversive activities to undermine the caliphate. There was a faction supporting the, quote, wronged deputy of Asad, and they were very disruptive when they challenged Nasr's legitimacy. Harith was still a thing, and he had a certain way with the Khurasaniyya which drew many of them towards his movement. This whole mess in the east was a microcosm of the Ummah more widely. 
Nasr was perfect for the job, and he held things together in Khurasan so well that from afar it looked like there were no problems at all. Likewise, Hisham took on the Ummah's challenges so that after his long reign, the Caliphate seemed as hardy as ever. But that illusion only held up as long as you didn't zoom in. Umayyad power in the East was really on its last legs. And while it did stand a chance of recovering meaningfully, it ran an even larger risk of falling apart altogether. Now that we've surveyed the Caliphate's precarious borders, we're almost done covering Hisham's long and eventful reign. We still need to take a look at the internal situation, talk about the major political differences between the Arabs, and give the man himself a little more attention. Join me next time for all this and more, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. (laughs) 